Welcome to Life Tones, real life information to help you navigate and level the playing field. I'm your host, Tony Felder, but you can call me Tones. The summer of 04 was interesting for me. Sure, it was like 16 years ago, but if you've been here before, then you know I like to take it back. Back to a time before now, sometimes way back into another decade or century. And 2004 was interesting enough because it was a very fork in the road kind of summer for me. And on a lot of levels too, be it socially, emotionally, physically, academically, as a whole, from the last school bell ring of my freshman year in high school to the first morning whistle on the football field at band camp in late August at a nearby college, this summer ended up being so impactful on where I ended up by the end of that summer and where I am today. And when I think back to why I decided to do so many things, or rather when I decided to do so many things in life, I always come back to that summer because I make so many decisions today because of what I experienced that summer. Now, speaking specifically about how I felt at the time and not now, I remember feeling as if I had left my first year in high school on a little bit of a high. I had a pretty successful freshman year in my eyes. I mean, two senior girls tried to date me. I almost kissed a junior girl and I dated two sophomore girls. I was cool with most of the band and our girls and my entire friend group consisted of the cool athletes in my class, which naturally extended up the class hierarchy, meaning future NFL prospects and future division one college players dat me up in the hallway between classes or didn't mind when I sat with them at lunchtime to chop it up. Obviously, all these things don't actually matter, but as a freshman in high school, trying to figure shit out, it was dope for me. I had spent my entire freshman year as a clarinet player in marching band and a beginning percussionist for a concert band. I wanted to be a snare drummer, but the drum instructor at the time never let freshmen on the line. So I had to put my drumming dreams on hold and play the damn clarinet. Now, there's nothing wrong with clarinet players or the instrument. I just had dreams of being a drummer. Anyway, I, I auditioned for the drum line and really wanted to play snare drum, but I ended up being put on quads. And those are these sort of horizontal set of tom drums that are typically the melody of a drum beat. We call them quads, meaning four, because most of us heard them called quads in high school and middle school. Um, and actually in high school, we marched with five drums instead of four. Some of us called them quints, other called them quads. The rest of the drumming world just called them tenors. So I was on tenors. It was higher than cymbals or bass drum in a hierarchical sense. So I was on a high from this achievement. I secured my first job at an ice cream parlor. Got introduced to this gorgeous girl who would be a long time multi-year crush. And embarrassingly, it was like the better part of a decade. Anyway, another time. The summer was off to a solid start. I had a potential girlfriend on the horizon, had some spending money in my pocket, and my social life was where I wanted it. I was never into drinking, and I didn't want to have a repeat of a summer ago where I went to a house party that got raided. I can still remember blowing into a breathalyzer. That was the first time I heard about what a breathalyzer was. I blew a double zero, one of only a few people who did, but this was back when OJ and five o'clock was a preferred drink. That was a stealing moment, and probably the main reason I never touched a drop of alcohol into my 21st birthday. At which I had a glass of Hennessy, of course. My friends and I were hanging out almost every day at each other's houses, having multi-day sleepovers and talking to girls. I was at an advantage when it came to hanging out because my mom worked third shift and was the deepest sleeper I've ever encountered. Like, so deep, you need to physically shake her awake 
if she didn't sound like her alarm. And for so long, it had been just my mom and me at home and Angel, our little runt of a black lab. So I never really had a curfew. And because I never really got into trouble, my mom let me go wherever. Not a lot of questions were asked and she invested a lot of trust in me throughout my high school career. I think I recognized that and thus never really did anything that bad since it was usually me and mom and my mom would work a seven days on seven days off shift cycle there would be a lot of days in a row where i would just chill at home by myself and drum but this summer was a little different in terms of who was hanging around the house my mom is a sweetheart and she always tries to help people out in any way that she can for this particular summer and really every summer until i went to college we had one or two people who were crashing at the house for a few weeks or up to a year or more. And when I think back to it, I can't really remember how it started, honestly. I remember who it started with when my grandpa was moved into the house about two months before hospice was needed. But the summer prior to 2004, we had just moved into the Bottomuda of this enormous historical Victorian house that was probably the house of a wealthy person at one point, but had now been reduced to low income housing. I'm assuming it was owned by the wealthy because when you recognize the gentrification of the area, two blocks away in the same historic districts are these massive homes that were never turned into multi-units and instead were beautified. But on my block, it was a bit different. My mom always made too much by like a few hundred dollars a year to ever qualify for Section 8, and she was against it. I'm not sure if it was pride or if she never really understood what it was, but I do know that the upstairs unit in our house was Section 8. I remember hearing the landlady talk about it a few times, and everyone in the house always hung out on the porch, so I'm sure it came up in passing somewhere. For listeners who don't know what Section 8 is, it's a low-income program developed by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. It came out in 1937 and works as a voucher program where the government will help subsidize rental housing for individuals and families so long as they meet a specific income requirement, usually something like less than one times the poverty line. I think Section 8 probably made sense at one point in time, but in my opinion, it has not lived up to its own potential and has actually created a de facto ceiling for millions of Americans' socioeconomic ladder. But I digress. This particular house was located one lot from the corner of a fairly calm but dangerous corner on the south side of town. Even at this young age, I was aware of no less than four trap houses, a few meth labs, and which abandoned houses not to explore and I would eventually be able to distinguish by ear the relative caliber of a gunshot and the approximate distance of where somebody was popping off. If you were to drive through this neighborhood today, probably four out of 10 houses on the block are now vacant lots. Some of that's due to the removal of abandoned and condemned homes or meth labs that exploded. And some of that is due to bad landlords who eventually forfeited the properties to the city. That sounds terrible, but the city passed laws that forced landlords to take better care of the property by levying massive fees and advancing building codes for rental properties. As a result, very few slumlords exist in the city. It's a progress in the right direction. But back in the day, meh, 
I bet this house was incredible. This two-story Victorian had immense character with massive rooms, a pretty small kitchen, but it had a servant's corridor in the back, which my mom and landlady always sugarcoated as the maid's quarters. It had really tall ceilings that had to be at least 12 feet high. Every room and bedroom had French doors and the enormous living room had massive windows that were all taller than me. And this really cool fireplace that we couldn't use because it's a rental, but I had never really had a fireplace before. So it was exciting for me. The dining room? Hmm. Well, the dining room had a built-in china cabinet and this was the first and last place I ever lived with a boiler system for heat. During really cold nights, I would sit on the radiators until they burn just a little too much. And that house is honestly the reason I have fallen in love with hardwood floors. The unit my mom rented for us only had two bedrooms, but because of the unfinished basement and enormous living room, we always had ample space for several couches. And for some reason, out of nowhere, there's this teenage female living with us. I've racked my brain on this subject for a while and can never really figure out how she just showed up but it was this odd coincidence because her boyfriend and his brothers were in my summer program when i was in elementary school they introduced me to yo-yos and had me wanting a silver bullet for like three years fast forward to the summer after my freshman year in high school and here they are all of a sudden they are over all the time and mostly because of this girl bella who was in some kind of trouble whether that was at home or with the law i don't know but my mom let her stay with us so i was okay with it in the moment, I probably thought it was cool as a teenage boy and an older girl living in my house. But looking back, nah. So because of Bella, early in the summer, it would be odd to come back to the house because my mom was a third shift worker and I didn't necessarily enjoy being around Bella and her friends at night. And it wasn't out of fear or any hesitation. They weren't doing anything bad or any issue that I had with these folks. It was 100% because we weren't friends. They were older than me. They either weren't in high school because they dropped out or they graduated and decided to not do anything else. Two of the guys who would come around the house were really into music. So there was some bonding connecting there. They taught me the basics of using Fruity Loop Studio, which is what I use to make this podcast, no affiliation. And I learned some interesting song structure ideas here before I ever developed as a musician. But overall, these weren't my friends. They weren't my people and we had little in common. So. I spent more time out than in, unless I knew Bella was going to be out with her man at his spot. And since everyone in the house was cool, sometimes she would just chill upstairs and babysit. So about three weeks into the summer, someone I knew from school came walking past the house. He didn't live anywhere near that I knew of. Last I heard, he was living on the east side. I was either hanging out on the porch or I might have been letting the dog out. And I noticed him just walking down the street, not a care in the world. He had a bag of gummy candy in his hand and a pair of headphones resting on his neck. The music was loud enough so he could hear it and not have to wear them on his ears, but back then they didn't make headphones very loud, so I'm not really sure what he was listening to. I called out to him and he looked over just as surprised to see me as I saw him. He was a cool dude for the most part. I mean, we had never been in the same class, but he was in my grade and we used to hang out during recess back in K through six. We were also on the same rec league football team in fifth and sixth grade. So we bonded back then and then separated a bit in middle school. And I stopped playing football because my fat ass hated running. And so our teenage friend groups sort of naturally manifested themselves in separate spheres. Not that those spheres remained totally separate thanks to a lunch hour, but we never really hung out, hung out. 
but it turns out his family had just moved into a single family house down the street and around the corner. And he asked if I wanted to come over later and play NBA Street. I said, sounded good. And that was honestly the start of a friendship. He would come over and hang out and I would go over to his house and hang out. We played NBA Street at his house and we'd play Halo at mine. He was a Husky kid and he always had real good snacks. So we usually spent more time at his spot than mine. He liked gummy candy and I ended up liking sour gummy candy. I was also big into energy drinks and beef jerky. I don't know why, but I spent a lot of my money on jerky and energy drinks. About halfway through the summer, he had been working at a pizza shop and saved up enough money to buy a moped. His plan was to moped to school in the fall since we were both too close to catch the school bus and his mom went into work early so she couldn't drop him off. He was probably a quarter mile closer than I was and I was only a mile from school. It didn't make much sense to me, but it was cool. He was very, very proud of that moped. He couldn't drive it very well. I mean, the first time he showed up, he ran into our front porch. He tried to get me to drive it, but I never really cared about it for some reason. But again, he was very proud of it. One weekend, we decided to go see a movie at the mall. I had just gotten my level one driver's license and my mom would let me take the car when she was asleep. And sometimes she would let me take her to work at night if I wanted to go do something later. Her mentality was, she's not as home as it is. You know, she would rather have me drive somewhere than walk somewhere and get jumped by something or, you know, you never know. Where I live, there are three levels to a driver's license, levels one through three, which each level has some sort of varying amounts of restrictions that are tied to your age. Oddly enough, this friend and I actually went through driver's training together less than a year before, and he and I were even driving buddies with our teacher. I was pretty serious about my license restrictions, and I told him I couldn't drive him, but we could meet up at the mall. He was like, no problem. I got my dope-ass moped. I'll meet you there. So we set a time based on showing times, and this was the day after a payday. He mentioned he might get some new shoes and a couple other things, and he suggested we meet early at the actual mall and not at the theater and do some shopping too. This made sense to me. I mean, I usually would buy snacks in the mall first before going to the theater, so I was fine with it. On Saturday, I had a normal day. I mean, I was still eating cereal in the morning, usually peanut butter crunch and watching Saturday morning cartoons. My mom got home from work. I told her I was going to the mall that day, but I'll be back before she had to work. She said no problem and asked if I could bring her a few things from the grocery store. I took care of the dog, probably played some Halo. Then I showered, put on what I thought was cool in terms of clothes in case, you know, many cute girls were at the mall. And then I headed out. It was roasting outside. The sun was bright and hot. I live in the Midwest and quite honestly, the summers are never that bad. They're always humid, but it's usually bearable, except there's always one week every year where we hit triple digit temps or heat index. And I think this was one of those weeks. My mom and I have never had a nice car. We usually hop from hoopty to hoopty. I remember one car we had, <laughs> uh, it makes me laugh every time I think about it. It was a late nineties Ford minivan, that boxy kind, before they sort of rounded them out. We called it the search wagon because at one point in time, my mom hit a deer. Everyone was fine, but the damage was weird because it crushed the left headlight, but the bulb was still fine. So when you turn the brights on, it legit looked like a helicopter search light beam was being blasted out and to the left. And this little van was rough. Someone busted like the, the very back side window. And so it had plastic duct tape to it. It only had one side view mirror, one hubcap, and the back window wiper didn't work. 
One day we were driving to the lake and the hood flew off while we were on the highway. Like it just blew back, cracked the windshield, it went over the back of the van. And then, uh, you know, when you look back, you can see it flying into the median. It had power windows in the front, but only one worked. Um, and that was the right one. And I can distinctly remember at night when it was my turn to host my group of friends all throughout middle school and high school. I had like two friends who were above me on my best friends all throughout middle school and high school. We were super tight. And one night my mom picked us up from somewhere and asked what we wanted for dinner. One friend said Burger King and she was like, no problem. So we rolled up and we were giggly kids. And my mom forgot that her window didn't roll down. It must have just broken down recently. So she had to open her door to get the food from the window, but she pulled too close to the window. And I remember me and my friends just crying, laughing at this piece of shit van, which made my mom really mad. Like she yelled at us and said she was trying her best. And in the moment I thought it was hilarious, but looking back, honestly, I feel bad for her. Anyway, this hoopty had a lot of problems. The radio never turned on. I don't think it had heat, it was rough, but it ran and it was funny. But we had gotten rid of that the year before and we had hopped into the next one. The car we had throughout high school was actually pretty nice for us, honestly. It was a little Mercury Forester, I think. It was a four door manual transmission green car that I swear, it got north of like 35 miles to the gallon. This little four cylinder, lasted until my sophomore year in college and had over 250,000 miles on it. Even though I don't remember my mom honestly ever getting the oil changed. As great as it was, the car did not have AC. So when I left the house that Saturday, I had to roll all the windows down manually, plugged in the little tape with that, that little uh, headphone cord to it, connected that to my little MP3 player, cranked it and headed out to the mall. I met up with my friend in the parking lot of the theater and walked over to the mall. The theater was on the same campus as the mall, but not connected by like a physical enclosure. So we headed in and went and looked at clothes, electronics and shoes. My friend wasn't finding anything he really liked. So he suggested we go to the department store in the mall that was also closest to the theater. So we headed that way. I think I grabbed a pretzel on the way. When you walk into the store from the mall to the left immediately is a little food court and i remember it being really empty except for some guy in a blue and white plaid shirt eating some food by himself we had some time to kill so he suggested we go check out some shoes and clothes here too just in case they were carrying something he might like we walked into the clothing area and he was looking at some pants and shorts i was checking out the shirts and then i noticed the guy from the food court walked past us into the bathroom and then a hat caught my eye and i went to try it on my friend slaps it out of my hand and he's like, don't you know that anyone could try these hats on? You don't want to catch lice. Okay, fair point. I'll put it back. We walked out of the clothing area and towards the electronics. My friend mentioned I played Halo too much. I told him I was getting stupid good at it. And he told me to grab a game from the 20 and undershelf and he would get me one. I was like, okay, cool. He said he would get one too. So we headed to that shelf and looked through the titles. I found what I liked. I don't remember the name. And then I turned around and started looking at some TVs while my friend finished looking. While I was looking over at the TVs, over to my left, the guy from the food court was there testing one of the video game systems. I think he was playing a hockey game on uh, like a PlayStation. My friend called me over and said, hey, you know, we should go look at the toys because his cousin had a birthday coming up. And then probably look at the sporting equipment because he needed a mouthpiece for the upcoming football camp. And then we could roll out to the movie. So we went that way, looked at a few things and headed to checkout. We were just about to check out and he was like, oh shit. I forgot, I wanted to look at one last thing. I was like, whatever. So I followed him back towards the clothing section. On my way there, I noticed Food Court guy again. I remember thinking, dang, 
This dude must be bored. He's just been walking around the store with no merchandise in his hand. Is he even shopping? If not, I mean, I get it. I always went to stores with stuff I couldn't afford just to aspire for those material goods. We get to the clothing section. He walks to the shorts area and he asks me, hey, you still got your keys? I'm like, yeah, why? He's like, watch this. He takes his keys and using one of them, he rips open the seal on the video game he was holding. He then slid it between the shorts, opened it up and pulled the disc out. And then he looks around and he's like, now you. And literally, without any hesitation, literally, like not even a thought in my mind, I was like, all right. I slid my case into the shelf, opened it, and pulled the game disc out. I slipped that into the pocket of my really cool cargo shorts. And then all of a sudden, I hear a walkie-talkie beat behind me. I turn around and see the food court dude hunched behind a shelving unit spying on us, talking into a walkie-talkie. My friend sees this too, and then he looks at me. His eyes get real big, like eyebrows up as high as possible big. He then throws the stuff we, and these are air quotes, shopped for, and says, yo, yo, bruh, and he dips. He literally threw all the shit he had in his hands and ran for it. We're in the back of the store. So I'm like, this motherfucker. I don't panic immediately. I just sort of stand there and try to look as confused and surprised at the same time. Like, what the fuck just happened? The guy who had been tailing us since we literally walked into the store took off running after my friend in a flat out sprint. I looked around, I didn't see anyone. I looked up at the closest camera, shrugged at it, and walked calmly to the front of the store. I grabbed a pack of gum and some sour candy from the checkout line and waited in it like normal. It was almost my time to check out and then the undercover security dude shows up behind me, gassed. Dude is out of breath. He says to me through heavy breaths, what's up, man? And I turn around and say, huh? He then shrugs and says, oh, nothing. And then pulls from behind his back that empty video game case. He opens it and says, hmm, why is this empty? My heart is racing. Immediately after he utters the word empty, a cashier from like five lanes down says, sir, I can help you if you're next. I look over at her and run towards her. I purposefully drop my candy right before the lane, double back, pick it up and simultaneously slip the video game disc that I had in my really cool cargo shorts pocket into one of those magazines that are sort of in the checkout lane on the lower level. This particular store stacks its lanes, not, not to give the store away. So one lane usually has two cashier and two sort of conveyor belts in it. Now, this woman who said she was open, she was the closest one to the front of the store. So I ran to her, I give her my candy and gum and she's ringing me up and then I see her look behind me and she sees the guy, it's the undercover guy and he's ripping the magazines off the shelf and violently shaking them, trying to get a disc to fall. I give the lady cash, tell her to keep the change, and power walked out the store. I walked straight into the parking lot, dipped behind the cars, and I peeked through the windows to see if I was being followed. I went towards a store that connected to the mall, then doubled back through an alley and got to my car. Well, my mom's car. I never saw that movie we were supposed to go. And that was the last time me and that friend hung out. It was also the last time I would go to that store for nearly three and a half years. I almost got into trouble doing something I would never normally do. But not only did I almost do it to completion, I was actively doing it 
with an expectation to finish it out. Like, I thought I was going to get away with it. Why? Peer pressure is weird. If you haven't seen the different instances of it peppered throughout this story, take a second listen and hear how many things I do alone versus what I do around my peers. Peer pressure is, without a question, more tacit than we think it is. So tacit, in fact, we can actually use its power to do really powerful things in our life, both personally and professionally. But before I dive into the power of peer pressure, let's pause to reflect so we don't become tone deaf. And I'll take you through the intricate idiosyncrasies and esotericism of peer pressure and how we can mold it to our will. Social circles are weird, and not in the sort of overarching idea of social circles and the idea around how we choose and pick people to be around, but more so how never-ending they are. And not in terms of continuity, but that until you are in complete isolation, literally just yourself and the world, you are in a social circle. You might think that's blasphemous, but it's true. I think if we went philosophical with it, you could even say you can never leave a social circle. But that's not really the point. What I'm driving towards is that if you are with a living being, you're in a social circle. At home alone with the cat, that's a social circle. Albeit, you could see it as a social line. But regardless of how you visualize it, understand that in essence, 
You are in this bubble, so to speak, with an infinite number of connectors surrounding you on all sides. And anytime you enter a space, whether that be physically or virtually, everything living or built by the living in some instances, immediately latches on to your bubble. And simultaneously, you latch on to every other bubble. The idea of a social circle is a gross oversimplification. The reality of it is that we are in a social ocean. And every time we dip our toes in the water, we're being pulled into the ocean and everything will have an impact on who and how we are. And peer pressure, the topic of this episode, exists at every connector site on your bubble. The reality of it is that all connectors have the power to pull you in their direction, which is counter to the idea of peer pressure from a semantical viewpoint. It would be more peer pull, but anyway, the real recognition of these connections and their power won't come until when we decide who or what has the most power after we've connected. And that power shouldn't be confused with strength or energy or status. Though they can be a component, this power is actually the power of influence, the power of manipulation, the power of control. And power is more dynamic than we think, meaning that its only constant is its perpetual flux. It's very rare that once you reach a certain age that you will ever walk into a situation where you and a counterpart or you and multiple counterparts have equal amounts of power distributed amongst you. Someone is always coming in higher or lower. Now at a younger age, when we are figuring this all out, I don't think little humans walking around masquerading as children and infants have yet developed a complex enough social order to have that much influence on others. I think that's because children are too curious to ever actually be genuinely influenced by other children or infants. Rather, they're deciding on what experiment to perform next. The question is, when do they realize the power they have over their parents or others in the nest can easily be used against those outside of the nest for personal gain? And it's never nefarious, I don't think. Again, they're children. My guess, they probably figure it out between the ages of two and three. But you and me, as adults, well, there is not a situation in the world where we will walk in and not have an unrealized social hierarchy established, even amongst lifelong friends, partners, or family members. And this can fluctuate at a moment's notice. It can change in the blink of an eye. You can give power and you can take it. Now, power, like I mentioned, is not necessarily strength or energy or status, but rather a combination of limitless factors depending on the situation. When you meet someone at a spot for a coffee, for instance, you can visualize how things might unfold. I want you to imagine that you hold all of the proverbial hypothetical power as you approach the coffee shop. It's a normal weekend morning. You've just pulled into the parking lot of coffee shop and you're behind the wheel of your car. Your favorite Life Tones episode is on in the background and the parking lot isn't too full. There are a few spots available scattered around the lot. This particular lot has a two-way traffic lane with spots next to the building and spots across the lane next to the sidewalk and the road. As you pulled in, another driver pulls in on the opposite side. There are two empty spots next to each other near the front door to the coffee shop. You head for the first one as the car that came in flips their turn signal on and picks the closest to the door of the two as you slow your roll to begin to park. You pull in beside that car and get out. As you approach the front door of the coffee shop, someone is on their way out. You pull the door open and hold it for them, and they smile at you as they walk by. The driver who parked right beside you is just behind you. And to be nice, but also not really thinking about it, 
you wave them in. They say thank you. You walk in and see your friend waiting for you at the back of the line. You greet each other and your friend ushers the person you held the door open for ahead of them so you can catch up in line and chat about the day before you grab your coffee. Now, I can keep going with this scenario. Talk about conversation topics, ordering drinks, who pays for who, who leads the tandem to a table to sit down, what kind of information is shared, what happens when one of you needs to use the restroom, and what happens right before you decide you should be leaving. And on and on and on and on. And honestly, you could walk away and say, I don't get it. This is just a story of two people meeting for coffee. And on the surface, you would be right. But when we start to dig down and look at all of the interactions that happen, I promise you, it's more than just being polite to people in the real world. It's also about positioning and micro power transactions and recognizing the little fluctuations in what you give and take from people. I want you to question, not cynically, but objectively. When you held the door open for the person who practically stole your parking spot, now of course, because of selective apathy, you're not even worried about it, but was that you giving or taking? Perspective is key here. Did you give them the opportunity to enter before you, thus taking from them their power to be more polite, or taking from them the power to decide on their own? Or did you give them the opportunity to enter before you, thus giving them the power to control your time? They might have an order for 15 people, or they planned on holding the line for three more friends, which of course, you'd let cut in front of you. It's just coffee. Now, yes, it is polite. Hold the door open for people. I'm not here to tell you to go be an ass or a jerk to people, but what's the difference between holding a door open for someone to walk in before you, or holding it for them as they catch up behind you? Maintaining your position in front of them as they catch the door before it closes. They're going to thank you regardless, right? Yes, you are allowing them to get in line in front of you. That's definitely a nice thing to do, but are you giving power or taking it? What happens when they order the last one in stock of your favorite menu item? Or when they take the last table? Are you then giving or taking? Or what happens when their friend comes in late and they have to then give up their spot to join that friend? You took from them their opportunity to not be nice. That is, you lightly pressured reciprocity or you took from them their confidence because they're actually really awkward around people as pretty or handsome as you. Or something smaller, like they get distracted on their phone and don't move with the line. Again, selective apathy. The point is not to say this person has done you wrong by any means. They most likely don't know what they're doing, but they might. Most likely they don't, because in all honesty, power dynamics and more insidious peer pressure can be so covert, we mostly never recognize it. When we are in unfamiliar places with unfamiliar people, but with ordinary standards, it is so easy for us to permutate our actions to form in with the new social order. It's human nature. There are no signs in that coffee shop that says to form a line. We just do it. Did you give away the parking spot or did you let them take it? A thin line and not necessarily the point. I recognize these objectively insignificant things are just that, insignificant but I'm hoping to paint what is in fact a much larger, more obvious picture of the little things that happen in a social circle. Remember when the friend ushered that person ahead of you, ahead of them? In your little social circle within a social circle, that friend held the power and created the pressure 
of enhanced politeness. Again, this is just an example for you to build out from in your own real world experiences. But your friend not only let the person go ahead of you both, but decided for you. You can easily see in a different scenario when you notice your friend and rush over to them to greet them and secure your spot. Or you can imagine your friend saying something like, oh my God, I'm so happy you made it. Come on, I saved the spot for you. And you could join them. Or you can actually be the one who decides the other person skips in front of you both. What you call politeness or common courtesy, I call peer pressure. You're more likely to recreate politeness in the presence of others. You're more likely to continue a chain of common courtesy in the presence of others. Someone held the door for you? Of course, you will hold it for the next person. But the one who held it for you in public probably left their shopping cart in the middle of the parking lot and not in the corral. Or maybe you do that. Think of the last time you were in a grocery store and you walked into an empty aisle with a product on the floor. You might pick it up every time, or you might only really pick it up when other people are around. You might think it's ridiculous to equate this to peer pressure, but if you're to pick up the item in the store every time, do you also walk or drive past trash and always pick it up? What's important to take away from this particular thought experiment is which peer pulled you in the direction of politeness and how far away from your base center was it? Because in reality, there are a small number of people who are currently in or will be in very powerful positions simply because they are the few that are acutely aware of the power of peer pressure. Peer pressure isn't just as simple as playing spin the bottle and having everyone chant kiss, kiss, kiss. But it also isn't just the idea of being in a situation where someone passes you a substance you never had any intention of trying as they look at you waiting to take a hit. It's so much more than that. I never really thought about peer pressure until Grammy and Pulitzer Prize winning artist Kendrick Lamar wrote about it in a song off his studio album Good Kid Mad City entitled The Art of Peer Pressure. Listen to this snippet as K-Dot takes us through an afternoon with his friends in the streets of Compton. Four deep in a white Toyota A quarter tank of gas, one pistol and orange soda Janky stash box when the federal rallies a roll up Basketball shorts with the Gonzales Park odor We on the mission for bad bitches in trouble I hope the universe love you today Cause the energy we bring is sure to carry away A flock of positive activists and fill their body with hate If it's necessary Bump a cheesy first album looking distracted Speaking language only we know you think it's an accent The windows roll down all I see is a hand pass it Hot boxing like George Foreman grilling the masses of the working world we pulled up on a bunch of working girls and asked them what they're working with Look at me, I got the blunt in my mouth Usually I'm drug free, but shit I'm with the homies Yeah nigga, we out for peeling Remy Red, come through and bust your head nigga Me and the homies Sag all the way to the liquor store with my niggas pulled forward, get twisted some more Me and the homies I ride for my motherfucking niggas, hop out, do my stuff, then hop back in Me and the homies What we have here is Kendrick painting a picture in fewer words than I can of him as an individual and how much differently he acts when he's with the homies. Think back to the coffee shop scene. Do you change anything if you're alone? You might not think so, but in a crowded coffee shop where you just let someone skip in front of you in the line, is this also the same shop where you might take up a two-person table by yourself? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's your right to take any table you want, but you could imagine a situation where you are sitting at a two-person table by
by yourself and then a mom and her kid comes in or an old couple comes in or fill in the blank of some party of people who would have a much better time if they had access to a two-person table and maybe you get up maybe you offer a chair or maybe you immediately put your bag in the chair across from you so no one takes it now i get it it's so easy to look at this and say bullshit tones i'm just not an asshole or these are stupid little things that's not peer pressure but isn't it i mean your actions were a direct reflection of the peers or a lack of peers within the ocean and these are low stakes low risk situations honestly but peer pressure is powerful if you can learn to wield it but in order to understand the importance of peer pressure we had to first illustrate the idea of power dynamics because it is so important that you understand that there is power in giving power to others so how can we use peer pressure to get things done i think you have to first truly believe that everyone generally wants to do the right thing the question is who is it right for because at the end of the day we have no authority over choosing what is right for others only what is right for ourselves and I'm sure I'll get some pushback from this, but this line of thinking comes from generations and generations of philosophers who have argued that man is selfish. Because even when you are being selfless, it is selfish. No need to get into a self-debate here about altruism, though I'd love everyone's feedback. But if you can recognize that we are all making moves, even seemingly selfless moves, for some more or less grand goal, that lifelong goal you decided on when you were two or three, then change it in middle school and again in high school. You are always marching towards the finish line of life and an idea of how that finish line should be adorned when you reach it, which means there are micro goals or checkpoints along the way that have to be satisfied. What does peer pressure have to do with all of this? Well, that inherent drive that people have for their own personal desires can be exploited, both personally and professionally. On a personal level, you have to be in tune with those who are closest to you and be able to pick up on the little things. Maybe you want to have a deeper relationship with someone who is really hard to crack. This could be a good friend, someone you are hoping to convert into a significant other or spouse, but you struggle to get to the next level. Maybe they don't share their feelings well or they don't ask you thoughtful questions, whatever the case may be. Pay attention to the little things they are doing in life. Truly understand what their goals are, what motivates them. What are they most afraid of? What do they really want in your relationship, in their current situation, in life, and meet them where they are. This will create authenticity and a strong connection with them. Recognize that we can't decide what is right for others. And when we run counter to this truth, people become defensive. They really dig their claws in. The idea here is that you have to lead with a covertness that is neither deceptive nor exploitive. Instead, meet them where they are. Give them a little bit of power. This could be in the form of empathy or time. It could be something as simple as humility or equity. It will honestly depend on the individual, but if you grant them a little bit of power over you, maybe letting them in a little more, being vulnerable, you are on the precipice of forcing reciprocity. It has to be so little, so minute, that they don't even notice they reciprocated. And as a result, you will get them to open up to you, to share with you, to be more genuine and authentic. If you've ever had the pleasure of studying interpersonal communication, a lot of this ideology I've personally thought about stems from that science. In interpersonal communication, a lot of time is spent discussing power, where people like Max Weber, or maybe it's Weber. He's a noted German sociologist. 
He defined power as the probability that one actor within a social relationship will be in a position to carry out her own will despite resistance. Where interpersonal communication falls short, in my opinion, is that it seems to think power heavily relies on an idea of authority. And I diverge from this mentality because I don't believe authority is necessarily fluid enough to explain peer pressure. Because in reality, you can impose your will on anyone. Now, if you go gun ho and start waiting on the significant other hand and foot, buying them gifts and doing outlandish things, thinking they're going to return the favor, you're wasting your time. Humans are complex social creatures, but you can watch them, learn about them, and use that information to apply pressure in the necessary areas needed to pull them in a specific direction. The key, however, is to nudge and lightly tug, never shove, never force, because the damage you can do to your relationship if you attempt to be overly manipulative will almost always have irreversible negative consequences. But if you can focus in and really learn about that lifelong goal I mentioned before, that is, what is really driving them? You can begin to augment a person's outlook on others, on you, on themselves, and you can begin to shape how and why they make decisions. If you're still not sold on power dynamics or sort of insidious peer pressure, think instead about real life scenarios where you were forced into a situation where you falsified your preference. Maybe you were with a family or a group of friends and someone wanted to do something or go somewhere and you weren't really that interested, but you went along with it. Why not? Or that time you had a family member's cooking. It wasn't that great, but you ate it and you praised it. Again, what you call common courtesy, I'm calling peer pressure because we all live in a world where we aren't allowed to be truly honest with people because if we were, we would probably end up alone. Not to say every relationship is this way, but I'm sure you know what I mean. So what about professional life? I mentioned just a moment ago that I don't think authority is very fluid. And this is true, your boss is your boss. And so you become the boss and you still have a boss. Unless you have your own company, but let's assume you're like 99.99% of all other humans and you answer to someone. It's unlikely that the authority dynamic in that relationship shifts day to day, but that doesn't mean you can't influence them day to day that you can't be the peer that applies the pressure. If you've ever had to manage up or manage your manager, then you are already in some form of fashion aware of this possibility. In order to tug the social circle towards the direction you want, you have to learn to poke your head above peripheral norms. That is, you have to lead by example, but in a subtle way. For instance, maybe you don't like how meetings are started. You could volunteer to start all meetings. What's interesting is you can actually gain an incredible amount of power based on when you speak in a meeting. At the beginning, you are able to set the tone, the pace, the energy, and all the other things you might care about. And if you do it frequently enough, others will follow suit. I did this at a workplace because I hated how the women at the table would get talked over all the time, or they wouldn't get a chance to speak. But I recognized this particular group of my leaders would all take a back seat to whoever was leading the meeting. I took that role and was able to then call upon the women of the team to get their feedback and call people out for talking over them. Next thing you know, my managers are calling each other out for talking over anyone at the meeting and better ideas start to be shared. I remember I was an operations director in a real estate and property management firm way back when. And I noticed when I came into that leadership position, I was tasked with bringing together dozens of people to work cohesively and effectively. But a problem I noticed, which was a good thing, 
was that my direct reports were all over the place in terms of age. No one was 10 years within my age, and they were either way younger or when adjusted to remove the youngest one, on average 28 years my senior. And in my experience, in working with tradesmen who are excellent in their craft, it can be difficult to communicate on their level when coming from a place of inexperienced managerial banter. So very quickly, I wanted to establish a line of communication between all parties that was going to simultaneously keep everyone on the same page, but also start to stir up things that weren't being discussed. Without going into too much detail, I had to develop a delicate balance between autonomy and micromanagement. I had to learn what my direct reports cared about, what, beyond a paycheck, kept them coming into work every morning sometimes staying late, and what was keeping them from coming to me for things they needed to make their work life better. First thing I did, I installed formal pronouns. This might be difficult in the workplace as we move away from gender-specific pronouns, but I knew my audience, so I made every greeting, every salutation, every gesture, every apology, every appreciation, every answer and request, every audible location I could find, I inserted a formal pronoun. For example, a worker who's in the field might call me for whatever. I don't answer the phone with hello or this is Tony. Hey Bob, what can I do for you? No, every time it was yes sir, what can I do for you? Or yes ma'am, how can I help? Every email ended with thank you sir. Every day at the end of the shift, everyone would always say have a good night and my response, yes ma'am, see you tomorrow. I did this in person, over the phone, in text and email, any paperwork with instructions, it included this. But I also would be intentional about greeting coworkers who were not my direct reports or who I reported to in the exact same way. Within less than a month, this is being reciprocated. Next thing you know, I've got 50-year-old journeymen changing how they talk to me, how they greet me, how they request items. But I also was able to record a measurable uptick in performance. But this was the little tug, the extra nudge. I was diligent for the first few months meeting my direct reports where they were. I understood jobs they liked and the jobs they had to do but didn't necessarily like. And for those jobs, I would pop up at the job site, roll my sleeves up, and help. I knew that meant I was going to have to do extra work in the office later, but I also recognized the dividends I would get. People work harder for people they like working for, and I never wanted to be the reason someone quit. Luckily, I never had anyone walk out on me in over two and a half years until it was my time to walk away. My point is that in any professional circle, you can intentionally move the culture into a better direction. Peer pressure exists in the workplace, and if you spend time to become more aware of it, you can see how it might be impacting your own performance for the good or bad. Humans are complex, but their professional aspirations are simple. Learn them, grow them, shape them, but be careful. You don't want to poke a bear or shine a spotlight on the elephant. Instead, be that tiny wake in the ocean and gently push the ship into the current. Overtones. Peer pressure is not what Hollywood tells us it is. It's not just the rumors we hear of kids chanting to encourage or the caricature friend who is desperately asking you to do something just this once. It's deeper than that. It's covert and underneath the surface, constantly shaping our every decision. Power dynamics play an incredibly significant role in peer pressure, but this is where you can find advantages in the world and shape those around you for the better. If you're still in disagreement, think objectively about people who act in benefit for themselves at the expense of others. And this idea of the better might not necessarily be better for all. 
Humans are complex, but the bonds they create are easily broken. Never manipulate, never extort, never coerce. You inspire, you motivate, you influence. But if you ever overdo it even a little bit, they will know. Undertones. Peer pressure is much more than those who are just close to us. Or those who we see every day at work or school. Those we know by name. Strangers can peer pressure you into doing things. Animals too. The real question is, what do you unknowingly pressure others to do? Do you require a certain action or set a level of expectation of something from people? Maybe you've never used these words, but that doesn't mean you haven't acted upon something similar. It's so easy to brush the significance of peer pressure off and slap a just be a good human sticker on it. But the reality of it is that really smart people are fully aware of the power of peer pressure. They get it, they understand it, and they use it to get what they want. Don't think you're capable of it? Well, <laughs> go ask your mom or dad what you did as an infant to get what you want and how often they just gave in to the realize. This isn't some highly intellectual skill set that you go to school for. It's instinctual. We are born with it. The difference between the few and the many is that most forget about it. They forget about the power they can have over others. Those that separate themselves from the crowd picked up on it and use it whenever they can. Some for good, some for bad. The biggest not talked about piece here is empathy and a high emotional intelligence. The fact is that you will never be able to use peer pressure properly if you don't first become capable of true empathy. Otherwise, you risk inserting your own selfish understanding, and that can be disastrous. But don't feel pressured by me. If this idea struck a tone, give us feedback and start a discussion. Feel free to reach out to me personally. If you want to share a story that is like this one or any of the others you hear, maybe you have a new idea. I want to hear it. I would also really enjoy the opportunity to eventually have you share your story with others right here on Life Tones. You never know when your tonal information might just change someone's life because the success of me is the success of we. On our next episode, we dive into the idea of effective listening. Come back to learn how to improve on a skill that can take you to new heights in your relationships and can help you obtain and retain information better, faster, and longer. It's been an honor and a privilege to be here with you. I look forward to our time together. Thank you. Life Tones is written and produced by me. Tonal Soundscapes, composed by me. If you enjoy Life Tones, remember to rate and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For additional content, follow us at Life Tones Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or visit us at tonesoflife.com. 